Welcome, everyone, to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 142. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at vjourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Cordy, at networknerd underscore. Hey, Nick, how's it going? Hey, John, I am doing great. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor-neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to virtual enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Awesome, Nick. Today is part two of our discussion of Deep Work by Cal Newport. Um, I just want to remind everybody who hasn't listened to part one, go ahead and uh, check out episode number 141, where we discuss uh, the first section of the book, which is kind of the why you should consider deep work. What's the advantage of deep work? Don't want to go over that again, but um, I think you said earlier on that you remembered where this book actually came from, how it came into our lives. Yes. So two avenues. One of them was through Josh Duffney. Absolutely valid, right? He mentioned that on one of his episodes. But if you remember the book goals episode we did, it was one of my book goals. And mm-hmm. I think I ended up getting there because I read Moonwalking with Einstein and uh, The Art of Learning by Josh Wadeskin. And it was just kind of categorized in those books in the recommended for you section or books like this. So I definitely read Deep Work sometime close to the time that Josh was on the show, but it was it was already on the list. Mm-hmm. And so when you suggested it, I started reading it again, and of course what happens, you get even more out of it the second time. Of course, of course. That's, that's awesome to hear how we came to it. Like, I mean, we were both reading kind of like performance-based books, right? And that's still like one of those things that we're uh, constantly revisiting. So it's cool to hear the the process that that it came into our lives. I just want to summarize or give uh, Cal Newport's definition of deep work again. Deep work is professional activities performed in a state of distraction-free concentration that pushes your cognitive abil- capabilities to the limit. Uh, these efforts create new value, improve your skill, and are hard to replicate. And on the flip side, shallow work is non-cognitively demanding tasks that are often done while distracted, which are easy to replicate and do not hold a lot of value in the world. You know, I think just an update to how we're going to go about doing this. We originally thought that we'd cover all of part two, which is the rules uh, in this episode, but we found that we had, you know, a lot more to say. We didn't want to gloss over all the different practical guides to implementing deep work uh, that Cal Newport wrote. you know, and the actual implementation of deep work seemed pretty important. So we're going to do an episode covering rule one, and then we think another episode covering rules two and three, and then another one on rule four, the conclusion, uh, rule four and the conclusion of the book, um, and our overall thoughts. So instead of doing one episode, I think we're going to expand this into three episodes, you know, very much in the style of I don't know, movies who want to stretch out all the revenue of uh, doing additional movies, right? Right, and all that revenue we're getting to do it. Exactly, exactly. 
But this is in the spirit of giving the career advice we wish we'd been given earlier and diving into some of these practical tips was actually quite fascinating to, to think about. So we hope that the deep dive will help you really consider if these things apply to you and, and maybe how to apply some of them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this will probably be an episode that, you know, a series of episodes that we refer back to, you know, pretty frequently. You know, just a, a reminder on the format, we're going to do a little bit of summarization on the different parts of the chapter and then answer whether we, one, we believe in the point that's being made, two, whether it applies to us, three, whether it makes us want to change, and four, what we anticipate changing, if anything. And one thing we realized, I think, uh, this week as we were talking about and preparing for the the episode recording is that, you know, this is really what we want. Like, we're trying to model how we're going to try to read books that have like a huge impact from now on. That is, you know, we might listen to an audiobook and go, whoa, that was, you know, really great. I need to kind of go back and revisit, you know, the written form, mark it up, make highlights, take notes, summarize big points. Um, record our reactions and then record what we're going to try to change in our lives as a result of, you know, coming across the big ideas of the book, which is not to say we're going to record, you know, episodes like this on every single book that we read, but, you know, the ones that are relevant to the topic of the podcast, you know, career advice, I think maybe we will add that in a little bit more. That track with you, Nick? Works for me. Awesome. Okay. So let's get to the actual content of Deep Work, part two, the rules. And this is more of a practical guide for implementing how to accomplish deep work. Um, so rule one, that's what we're covering this week. Rule one is work deeply. I'm shocked. Yeah, very general statement, right? That's not a that's not a practical rule. Um, so this uh, rule gets broken up into points and subpoints and sub subpoints, uh, which you know is probably not a surprise for something which is, you know, so on its face, very, very general. The opening of the book kind of talked about how, you know, business workspaces are are almost like designed to keep you distracted. And, you know, an example of a conceptual architectural design, which would be designed to do almost exclusively deep work, you know, so ideally, you know, we'd all have access to workplaces purpose designed to help us maximize, you know, that ability to do deep work. But unfortunately, you know, we live in a world with open offices, uh, when we're back in offices, pressure to, uh, pressure to live highly connected lives, um, you know, responding to text messages, responding to emails right away, responding to chats, uh, Slack messages, whatever, all those things that lead to distraction from what we're actually trying to do if we're trying to focus on deep work. Um, so if you, you know, read the first part of deep work and were convinced to do, you know, rededicate your life towards doing deep work, or you just listened to, you know, the previous episode of this podcast and got convinced, you know, this quote probably applies to you. You're a disciple of depth in a shallow world, unfortunately. The first section, you know, sub point here is to decide on your depth philosophy. So remember, this is how to work deeply, right? How to practically apply the, the goal or the rule of working deeply. So this um, section is kind of divided up into four points. Um, the different 
the kind of taxonomy of depth philosophies, which are a monastic philosophy, a bimodal philosophy, a rhythmic philosophy, and a journalistic philosophy. So let's talk about what each one of those actually means. The monastic philosophy involves radically removing or minimizing the distractions that would take you away from doing deep work. And the examples that he gave are kind of people who moved away from society, you know, almost like a, you know, Walden model of, uh, you know, building a, almost a completely separate building that's difficult to get to and nobody can reach you there and spending, you know, most of your life in that space doing your deep work. That probably doesn't apply to many of us. Like not many of us are actually going to do that. But it is an interesting, you know, point to make, which is this is one way of doing deep work. Uh, the second is the bimodal philosophy of deep work scheduling, right? Um, the practitioners of the bimodal philosophy divide their time between a period of monastic-like, uh, deeply focused work and a period of engagement um, without a priority on that on that focus. You know, their their primary focus. So those time periods are generally up to the individual, but, you know, probably don't divide below the length of a single day, right? So the shortest period of time that you're probably going to see somebody practice by bimodal deep work scheduling is one day on one day, you know, one day doing deep work and then one day not doing deep work. But, you know, he gave examples of, you know, college professors who might schedule all of their teaching responsibilities in one semester and all of their, you know, committee work in that same semester, and then taking, you know, one or more semesters, then doing like focusing exclusively on their research and, and not actually reachable by almost anybody. The next philosophy is the rhythmic philosophy. Um, and the practitioners of the rhythmic philosophy employ ritual to spend a certain amount of time or uh, a certain specific time of every day engaged in deep work. And then they try to remove the friction of engaging that deep work by deciding ahead of time, like that time block is dedicated to that deep work. And then what time, you know, implicitly is not. This is probably where most of us are probably going to, going to fall. We're working, you know, office style knowledge work jobs. You know, even if we're working from home, it's still that office style where we have to engage with the outside world. We can't just say, hey, today I'm not going to answer any emails. I'm not going to listen to any voicemails. I'm not going to answer the phone. Like that, that's almost, for most of us, that's just unrealistic to do that for the entire day. Um, but we might be able to schedule, hey, I'm going to work for two hours on this project. I'm not going to check my email. I'm not going to, you know, um, answer any Slack messages. And then, you know, I'm going to spend... 30 minutes being highly connected. And then I'm going to dive back into deep work for a couple more hours. Like that, that's pretty realistic. And then the last uh, philosophy in the taxonomy is the journalistic philosophy, which is named after the journalists who mostly practice it. Right. So they're oftentimes called on to shift from, you know, doing like distracted work into deeply concentrated writing, like without warning. It's like, I've done this work. I've done this work. I've done this work you know, background work, and then boom, we need you to write, 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 write. So this is not an easy philosophy to engage in. It requires a lot of training to just shift from shallow work very, very quickly to deep work. And, you know, that writing task um, probably takes a lot of practice. Um, and it's almost certainly not for everybody. But unfortunately, it probably 
when people think about deep work, they probably think that they can do this, right? I'll just, you know, be mostly distracted and then boom, you know, I'll just turn it on. I'll flip a switch. The next major section um, is this idea of, um, you know, after the uh, that taxonomy of uh, depth philosophies is the idea of ritualizing work. So um, there's this romanticized notion of how artists work based around, you know, sudden sparks of inspiration. And Cal Newport really points out that real artists work constantly and consistently. So he's recommending that we build strict rituals to steer ourselves into deep work. Um, we do this to reduce the energy that it takes to transition into that deep work and to stay in that state longer. And the the quote that kind of jumped out at me was from David Brooks, uh, great creative minds think like artists, but work like accountants. And it actually uh, reminded me um, of another quote uh, from Chuck Close. Um, he said, inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. If you wait around for the clouds to part and a bolt of lightning to strike you in the brain, you're not going to make an awful lot of work. All the best ideas come out of the process. They come out of the work itself. Effective rituals are going to answer three questions. Uh, when and for how long you're going to work. Two, uh, how you'll work, like what the rules and processes of that work is going to be. And three, how you'll support your work like nourishment in the form of food, exercise, removing physical distractions, and so on and so forth. So um, with that in mind, let's do a little bit of reaction to those two sections, the taxonomy of deep work philosophies and uh, the idea of ritualizing, because that is probably the thing that most of us are going to need to do, right? The At least for me, did I believe this? The taxonomy I found made a lot of sense. I'm sure that people can come up with like other hybrids, you know, but you know, it's a good mental model for like, you know, you're probably going to be doing one of these four. Um, and yeah, the rhythmic probably makes the most sense for most people. We're going to schedule this part of the day or this amount of time. And then, you know, we're going to schedule other time to do, you know, more administrative tasks, answering emails, responding to chats and texts and, and those kinds of things. So how about you? I think absolutely. I can tell you, and I think I've mentioned this on previous shows, that I've experienced that bimodal part before, just by the wife and me going somewhere for the weekend. Maybe it's an Airbnb, and I took my podcast stuff, and it's a totally different environment. Set up my gear, and she went shopping, and I went working, right? And I feel like I was way more productive than I would have been if I stayed home. I, I won't say that I disconnected myself from the whole world because, well, she was there with me, right? But during a, a few hours of the time that we were there, I was feeling like I was in the zone more deeply than normal. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, that bimodal, we can probably engage in that every once in a while. I didn't really think about that. I think there's something to that changing away from your normal environment that... Mm -hmm flips a switch in certain ways. Yeah, going away, renting a house for a weekend or a couple of weeks and, and just being away from everything and just isolating yourself. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think maybe the only thing is, is that that doesn't mean that we can be totally distracted exactly. the rest of the time. <laughs> but if we want to make like that kind of special special effort, you know, scheduling that bimodal 
time or that time away. Like that makes a lot of sense. All right. So does it apply to me? I think we kind of both answered that as yes, right? Yep. Does it make me want to change my behavior? I mean, again, for me, this was an easy yes. (laughs) Um, I definitely need, you know, picking a taxonomy and like, obviously that, um, rhythmic taxonomy, like rhythmic version of doing deep work makes sense to me. I think your statement about maybe scheduling time away from work, uh, to do, you know, specific things that might be very interesting. It might be more for my non-work activities though. I think it'd be a little bit difficult to say, I'm going to take this time off and get away from, you know, the job and then to actually spend that time on my job. Like that, that wouldn't make any sense. And I don't think that my job would say, hey, John, it's okay for you to take, you know, two weeks away and work on your work without being responsive to anything else. Right. You know that oftentimes vacation is a time for me to work on nerd journey things. So it just it just happens. I yeah. I really I really like the choose your own philosophy here. It gives you the the freedom of choice to figure out what works for you. And I agree that rhythmic is probably a solid choice for most people, although there's a large part of me that wants to get to the journalistic piece to be able to transition in and out quickly because I think that would be super valuable in the tech industry. You come out of a meeting that ended early. Okay, I have 30 minutes that I didn't plan for. Let's go. Yeah, to be able to add that in, right? But it takes practice. It must be so difficult. I think what you're describing is like found time, right? It's like, mm-hmm. it's bonus time. So yeah. to be able to do deep work in that bonus time instead of succumbing to distraction. Oh, this meeting ended 30 minutes early. I'm going to start doom scrolling <laughs> right through my newsfeed. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. And, you know, having something on deck that you can work in, uh, work on for that for that bonus time. Totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good, really good point. I'm gonna, I'm gonna stop doom scrolling. Uh, I've never heard of that term before now. So, oh, really? Yeah, oh, I'm gonna have to look that up. <laughs> okay, what will I change to align myself with these ideas? For me, it's going to be scheduling that time, um, and then working regardless of whether I'm feeling inspired to work, whether I'm. F- whether I feel like the work that I'm doing is quality work, like it's just, you have to just keep on doing it. Like that was that idea of ritual and, you know, timed work instead of like, you know, waiting for inspiration to strike. It's like, um, you know, you, you get to work and you do it and then you edit later, right? Like maybe there's a bunch of what you do that's, uh, that doesn't meet your standard, but it's a little bit easier to pare away bad work than it is to just, you know, twiddle your thumbs until like you suddenly something, you know, the stars align and and magically start doing good work. Right. So I think like that's a really, really big deal for me doing that kind of time scheduling. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, just being really strict about that, you know, at the beginning or at least strict with the ritual of scheduling that time saying this time is, you know, very clearly for this. Um, I found interestingly enough, like my, uh, calendar app on my phone, I 
happen to be using an Android phone. But the Google Calendar app lets you um, create goals and then it'll automatically, like you say, I have this goal. Uh, this is the amount of time I want to um, spend on this goal and how often I want to spend it. And then it will automatically add that to your calendar. It'll just find holes in your calendar. Now I happen to be using, you know, um, Google, uh, Google's calendar app at work and in my personal life too. So, or at least on my phone. So adding, you know, having it automatically schedule two hour blocks in the morning and, or one hour block in the morning, and then an additional one hour block in the afternoon, um, is really easy. So I added that. And, uh, so now it automatically schedules, just finds one hour. And if I schedule over that hour, it automatically reschedules it to a different block, which is pretty cool. So, um, if you are using Android for your work where you can interact with your work calendar with a, the, the Android calendar app, that's a, that's a little tip from me. Very nice. I think for me, it's all about practice. I need to engage in the practice of deep work more. The other day I wrote down a list of all the things that I needed to do and I tried to put them in the proper order for the block of time I was going to do this in so that I wouldn't have to decide what to do first. And it definitely helped. And ever since I started reading The Practice, since I read The Practice by Seth Godin, it's made me want to write more, blog more. And I think deep work is the way to be able to do some of those things. I mean, I did, I have managed to, for a number of weeks now, after I work out on Saturday morning, I go and I write one or two blog posts for my daughter's blog, you know, that I'll eventually give to her when she's older. So I can say that I've been able to structure that time and accomplish that. And it's just, it's a habit now. So it's mm -hmm. part of building the habit. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. I, I didn't even think about doing something like that. It also makes me want to read more Seth Godin. I kind of yeah. put him in the box of like marketer and not productivity type person. Um, but uh, it makes sense that he has more than one type of book in him. <laughs> I also like the idea of like trying to figure out ahead of time, like what it is that you should be working on. So there's no decision to make. That reminds me a lot of David Rock's uh, ideas and your brain at work. That's a that's a task in and of itself is to decide what to work on. So take away the friction of, of doing that. And just one last thing on the journalistic approach. It makes me think back to Brianna Blasse's episode 121, where she talked about being in journalism and you have these tight deadlines. You have to produce work or it doesn't get in the news like it's supposed to or in the in whatever is being published. There is no writer's block. Like you can't afford to not have something ship. Right. Just right. Nice. All right. So the next section, um, the next points that we're going to cover, two points. Um, the first is make grand gestures. Uh, the grand gesture involves making a significant financial or physical investment in an environmental change to make deep work possible, um, obligating ourselves to the task. Um, actually, this makes me think that your uh, weekends away fit more into this category. Um, although I, I don't know, maybe if it's one time, it's a grand gesture. And if it's regular, then it's a, uh, you know, bimodal. I don't know. Yeah, probably the former, at least for now. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd ha- I might have to get somebody to fund the latter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have that kind of cash, man. Uh, if only. But maybe even just go into Starbucks for 30 minutes if you can sit outside and not be distracted by people coming in and out. Maybe that's a way to yeah. do it. Or working in a park. Yeah. You know, someplace where there's less foot traffic, just away, right? Maybe even in nature outside. You know, I say this as somebody who lives in California, so I just automatically assume that people can walk outside and be fine working. Uh, that's probably not true for everybody. But maybe a library, you know, maybe that would be a good spot. That's usually quiet and distraction-free. Of course, during COVID, are libraries even open? I don't, I don't even know. I think it depends on where you are. Yeah. Cal Newport in his uh, Deep Questions blog, like he or not blog, podcast, he started a podcast during uh the pandemic one of the things that like kind of emerged is that he decided to like rent office space away from his home because he was losing his study to his kids um homeschooling basically right stay home and and do school at home so because he's losing that space he needed to have a space to go to so he rented an office and uh some commercial space and turned it into an office and did a whole thing there. So that, you know, obviously there's a financial investment in that. So it's really, uh, if you can afford to make those kinds of, uh, grand gestures, then hopefully it actually obviates you, obligates you to do that. The second point here, it was actually a pretty long section. Um, but I have a very short summary. Uh, collaboration can be a good tactic, but it should sh- should still involve structure to protect concentration and to minimize distraction. And the examples that Cal Newport gave here were Bell Labs and uh, MIT, like a specific building at MIT. It was really interesting, too, because I think what he was getting at was that a lot of businesses have um, learned like the wrong lesson from these specific institutions which was hey you know just having people like able to interact with each other um leads to good things good outcomes but specifically at bell labs and mit what they actually had were areas where people could concentrate and then kind of almost structured socializing time where everybody came together to cafeterias or break areas or things where they would eat meals in in uh, close, you know, uh, close to each other and then would potentially collide with each other and then engage in conversations. And then, you know, kind of these collaborations would spring up as a result. So it still, these things still protected like these offices and deep concentration and deep work areas. Um, But then those collisions were interesting too. But what in modern business we've learned from that is Oh, hey, we'll just put everybody in one room without any way to keep, you know, people from being distracted and then just say, oh, yeah, the collisions. That was what was important, not any of the concentration. Hopefully there's food in the room and some coffee, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that that doesn't help. That's even more distracting, right? Um, so do I believe this? The first question. So, I mean, yes, I understand it. It's I also found it really interesting to hear about the Bell Labs and the MIT um, examples like that was that idea that like, Oh, you know, somebody did like a really shallow 
investigation into what that meant. Oh yeah, you can get great creativity and really interesting results out of people collaborating with each other, you know, who normally wouldn't because they're all in one building and without structured, you know, um, areas like, oh, all the physics offices are over here and all the electrical engineering offices are over here. And when everybody's jumbled together, you know, then they collaborate. That's the lesson. But that isn't actually what happened, right? The the details of how those collaborations happened, like really mattered. And that re- really rings true for me. For me, I I was a little more focused on the the grand gesture section about believability. I mean, I believe both, but that that giant hairy goal that that scares you into discomfort you know it's going to push you to the edge of your capabilities in a lot of ways it's a motivator when you commit to doing it yeah yeah absolutely that grand gestures i think i believed too as a motivation tool like that you know motivation and accountability tool right i think one of the examples was somebody who like took a nonstop flight to japan and then turned around, like spent like 30 minutes in the airport and then took a return flight. Right. And it was like in the, those two trips, like, you know, wrote out like a book chapter or like outline for a thesis or like, you know, thesis chapter or whatever it was. I don't remember exactly, but it was like needed that time to be unreachable, not have anybody that like they knew on the plane, you know, no distractions just right for 20 straight hours right so that that was interesting so like that you know naturally leads to the question like does this apply to me so that grand gesture part made me feel like no that doesn't apply to me right so it's an accountability tool um i think that it is completely possible to make a grand gesture and then just squander it right and the other example was I think uh, J.K. Rowling, who is the author of the Harry Potter books, um, checked into like like a super fancy hotel to get away from home to finish like the last book or something like that. And it was like, I think it's, you know, for somebody who's super distracted, it is very possible to check into a super fancy hotel and then just spend all your time doom scrolling or, you know, other, you know, sleeping, eating at the restaurants, you know going you know going to the spa hanging out in the hot tub like that is totally possible too so i think that um maybe i just realized as i was talking i'm coming to this from the point of view of someone who has attention deficit disorder and so a lot of times like i would rely on the the fear motivator like the oh no i'm 24 hours away from the deadline or you know like to actually start working on something. And so maybe fairly or unfairly, like this reminds me of that motivator, which I think is like a bad motivator, right? It's, it's better to just structure your time, organize your life to do, you know, regular deep work, uh, you know, you know, spread out over a period of time and not have to rely on, Oh, here's the deadline. This, you know, I only have this time to work on it because this is how long the plane flight is, you know. So, again, not everybody's me. And that was just my reaction uh, from my context. So, I don't know. How about you? I think I'm going to take the collaboration part. I mean, I Mm -hmm. think they both apply to me. But on the collaboration side, you learn about this when you do a 
a podcast with a co-host like John White. I've said it before, riffing back and forth with John gives me time to think of something hopefully insightful to say, whereas me just monologuing is not, I, I don't get that. It's the collaboration itself that we structure into the show, whether purposefully or kind of accidentally, that that really helps maybe those deep insights come out better than they would if one of us was doing it alone. So we might have a working session like we did before this podcast to put together the show, and we've each thought about it a little bit before that, and then, like they talked about in the book, the people come together in that the deep working session where everybody's focused, and you you produce work. And hopefully, if you're listening, you, you think it's helpful. Yeah, that actually really rings true for me. Like, when you said it, I was like, that actually definitely happens. Like, as we're talking... Like you say things that inspire me as, you know, during our preparation session. And then you say things, maybe even the same thing. And it inspires me while we're doing the show, like actually recording the show. Like, you know, in this example, like exactly that. Like, and then it actually reminded me, oh, wait, you know, when I'm in the office, you know, working with my coworkers, like I, you know, do a certain amount of work on my on my own and then we maybe all go to lunch together and chat and then I get to hear about what it is that they're working on I get to ask questions you know and that inspires me to do other things I mean it's just very very similar to this you know the what was being described right except that we had to work in an open office so everybody had headphones on that was, that was the difference all right so um next question does it make me want to change uh change behavior and I think, like, you know, that's a simple yes for me. Like, I definitely want, I was highly motivated to change my behavior, you know, around um, maybe organizing collaboration and maybe, again, not so much the grand gesture. Like, it, you know, it definitely made me think about my reaction to it, though, which I think was really good. How about you? I would say yes, it does. I know that I've set some goals here and there. But I don't know that I've really approached them from the deep work mindset until recently reading this again. So I need to I need to work on that. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, you know, last question here. What will I change to align myself with this idea? And I think I said it, you know, scheduling collaboration time with colleagues in a more structured way, um, you know, to bring other people's views into my work. You know, if we're working on the same thing or working on similar things, like I want their feedback, I want to know how they're thinking about something. Just, you know, because of what you pointed out, we're both working on the same thing, you know, prepping for the show. And to hear your points of view on some of these things, you know, they're different from mine. Like you come from a different context and a different background. So you're shining a light on different parts, you know, of the topic, which are, you know, critically important to me like you have insights that i don't and you know hopefully vice versa and vice so, versa yeah yeah so it you know that is just magnifies the value of the entire process for me 100 percent. i think the the structuring is what i'm taking away from this as something that makes things easier including decisions on what you will and won't do Thinking back to Josh Duffney again, episode 123, he talked about deciding not to decide, saying that he wanted to write a book, and because he had that goal, 
he would automatically say no to any special freelance work. And so in the in light of the grand gesture, right, if you have this big hairy thing you want to achieve, like maybe somebody who's going after a big certification, CCIE, VCDX, other things you're going to have to say no to, but you can make it easy on yourself. Ah, uh, yeah. So the goal as like a clarifying big gesture, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, like totally understand that. So Nick, I think that's the end of that point in the section. And I'm looking at the time. We've already recorded 40 minutes. Um, and it feels like maybe we should call <laughs> change the plan again, right? Um, I think rule one has so much stuff in it, so many points and subpoints that we probably need to do two episodes on rule one. So let's maybe stop there. What do you think? That works for me. Well, anything else pop in your mind, you know, just before we exit and move on to the next part or uh, the rest of our lives? (laughs) Not really. I would just say stay tuned for the rest of rule one next week, talking about things like executing like a business and being lazy. So maybe this series will help you be lazy enough to where you don't have to read the book. I guess we'll find out, right? (laughs) Right. Just a reminder, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. All right. Farewell, listeners, and tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White, at BJourneyman for Nick Courtney, at NetworkNerd underscore, signing off.